first lesson comes from Philemon, beginning at the first verse. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you when I remember you in my prayers. For I hear of your love and your faith for our Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that your faith, the sharing of your faith, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, for the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required of you, I prefer for the sake of love to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What good news does the church have for this secular age? We begin a three-part series looking at the book of Philemon, asking the question, what good news does the church have for our secular age? You think in terms of our secular age in those atheist bus advertisements in London, England from about a decade ago, those atheist bus signs funded by the British Humanist Society that said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Right? This is the secularism that we live into today. As Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says, this secular age is unlike anything else in human history. An age where belief in God and in spiritual realities is no longer assumed, but rather the opposite is assumed. The assumption, it seems obvious to a secular age, that the world is all there is. The problem for the church is we live into this age. The gospel isn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As my bishop back in Canada, the title of his book, The Gospel Still Works, it does. But the difficulty we have is that so often the church is still trying to answer questions that our current secular age is no longer asking. I remember being 14 years of age, coming out of an intellectual atheist family, where I was asked by a friend once, for the first time, you know, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And I remember being shocked at the question. And I simply said, I don't know. And I don't think I care. And it was an honest answer coming out of a secularized mindset that said, I don't even think about those things. Uh, it was only a couple years later when I was 16, still an atheist, when a friend of mine gave me a tract with the four spiritual laws. 
and said, do you want to know how you can have peace with God? And by that time, I was a little more aggressive and I said, first of all, I don't even know if there is a God. And secondly, why would I care whether I have peace with him? Again, the church trying to answer questions that maybe the world isn't asking. But I'll tell you what the world is asking. Our secular age is asking, among many things, three particular questions. And this is the great opportunity for the church. Listen to what the world is asking and see how Jesus, yet again, will always meet the world in those questions. This world wants to know about love. What is love? And can I find it and would it last? This world wants to know about purpose. Why am I here? What am I to do with my life? What is meaning and value? And this world wants to know about justice. What is justice? And will we ever see it in our times? These questions of love and purpose and justice are some of the many questions our culture is asking. And what's amazing is the book of Philemon powerfully addresses these three questions in a way that will transform the way we see love and purpose and justice. So before we can get in, we've got to give you the background of this story of Philemon, the two principal characters in the story, Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon, who is a prosperous Colossian. Right? He lives in Colossae. He is having, as a Christian, very likely the Colossian church meets in his home. Right? This is where the Colossian church meets. And this prosperous Christian Colossian has had his slave, Anesimus, run away and rob him. And this is serious. Because if Anesimus should be caught being a first century slave. The likelihood is he'll be tortured. Runaway slaves are bad for Roman society. Want to discourage it. Even more so, probably a hot brand will be put to his face that says, runaway slave. So he'll never be able to do that again. And even possibly, he'll be crucified for this. But see, here's the challenge. Anesimus has gone to Rome, it seems, during his runaway period, and he bumps into the apostle Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome. And through Paul's ministry, it seems, Anesimus becomes a Christian. He becomes a Jesus follower. And he begins assisting Paul in prison. But the day comes when Paul's got this outstanding conflict in his mind, he knows that Philemon and Anesimus are going to have to figure this out soon. The day comes when Paul has a letter that he wants to send to the Colossian church. And he needs someone to take it. And who better than a former Colossian, Anesimus? Now, you know that book that Paul sent with Anesimus. It's called The Letter to the Colossians. But as Anesimus brings this letter he realizes the danger that Onesimus is in. Paul realizes it. And so he gives him this short letter that we call the letter to Philemon. This is his entire defense to keep him from being tortured and possibly even killed for being a runaway slave. It's an incredible book. It's an incredible piece of Greco-Roman persuasion literature. And we'll walk through that over the next few weeks. But to begin this Sunday, Paul begins with a theme of love. 
The first part of the book begins with this theme of love. In fact, it's actually all the way through. Love, verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, verse 16. Love is throughout this letter. The difficulty we have as we open up this subject of love is that in our current society, love is getting harder and harder to define, isn't it? Right? We live in a world now where the definition of what love is is difficult to grab a hold of. Right? We've got more relational choices than ever before in human history. And yet, isn't it true that love seems less durable and less lasting? And the result of this is record amounts of loneliness. The former U.S. Surgeon General said that loneliness is now the most prevalent danger to men's health in America. Loneliness is the most prevalent danger to men's health in America, greater than cancer, greater than heart disease, greater than obesity, loneliness. We live in a world desperate to know what love really is. And here in this letter to Philemon, Paul opens up the concept of love in a way that is transformative. Paul speaks of a place, the church, where love is guaranteed. The the nature of what it means to be in the church means that love will be there guaranteed for sure. But not only guaranteed, as Paul opens up this concept of love, it's, it's also that this love is generous. The love that is in the church is a generous quality of love. But not just guaranteed and not just generous, but the love that Paul describes in the church is one that is true, unearned gift. Grace. And so, we begin with love that is guaranteed. If you're with me, it's Philemon. It's probably one page in your Bible. Someone after the first service said, are you really going to preach three sermons on one page? And I said, don't test me. I might do 20. (laughs) Verse 1. We read, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. See, it begins with this language of beloved. Philemon is beloved. What Paul is saying is that this place, the church, is a place where love is guaranteed. You see, Paul is beloved. Paul isn't saying, oh, Philemon, I pray that you would be beloved. I pray that you would experience what it might mean to feel beloved. He says, Philemon, you are beloved. And not only are you beloved, it's a fact, but you, Philemon, are a man who shows love. Verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. You love all the church, Philemon. And then verse 7. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see, Paul is not admonishing Philemon to love. He's just identifying the reality that this is a place, the church you're in, where love abounds. Love is a reality there. You are loved and you love others. It's built into the nature of what it means to be the church. It's intrinsic. It's expected, it's a given, it's guaranteed. Love abides within the church. And it's interesting, the word that Paul uses throughout this book, and that is used 
so often in the New Testament is the word for love, agape. Of the many words in Greek for love, agape, people understand to be kind of an unconditional nature of love. But I like to translate agape love as family love. Because by describing this kind of love as family love, what it means is let's understand what the basis is for this love. Is the basis for this love that I do well? I behave well, I'm an attractive person, I do things for you, it's good for you, so you love me. No, the basis of family love, agape love, is that I am loved by the nature of who I am. I am part of the family, right? This is the nature of the love that Paul speaks about, a guaranteed family love. Now, let's be honest, no family is perfect, right? We all come out of families uh, that are not perfect, some less than others, Right? The old adage that every family has a strange person in it. And if you don't know who it is in your family, it's most likely you. <laughs> See, the idea of family love is, it is the basis. It tells us what the basis of being loved and loving others is. By nature of being family. This is the way we understand love. And yet it's so different than the way the world so often describes love, isn't it? Uh, you think of Aristotle. Aristotle, speaking very much in the secular mindset, said that, there's, uh, that love, friendship, should be offered to people uh, who fit three categories. One, of, one, one or more of three categories. You, you should be friends. You should show love to those people who are useful, who are pleasant, and who are good. And if they don't fit that category, you don't need to love them. You don't need to show friendship to them. Zygmunt Bryant, uh, who is a modern-day sociologist, uh, has written a book called Liquid Love, describing the fragility of love today. And he says that for us today in our culture, love is voluntary, love is less permanent, love is easily abandoned, love is fragile, love is liquid. But family love is totally different. The love that Paul is pointing to is totally different. It's a different nature of love, a family love. My grandmother, 103-year-old grandmother, died a week ago when I was in Rwanda. Now, she was 103, full life. She knew the Lord. We'll be burying her this summer uh, at our family little church out in the prairies of, of Canada's uh, Saskatchewan shield. But I'll tell you, as I think of my grandmother, as I've been reflecting on her life this last week, it was my grandmother and my grandfather's house that was such a place of refuge and home and security and acceptance and being delighted in. As I would go to see my grandma and grandpa, it was just this place where I knew that I was loved. And here's what's interesting. My grandparents didn't live in the same town that we did. I only saw my grandparents maybe three, four times a year. Right? I'd see all my other friends almost every day at school and different interactions. So why was it that when I went to my grandparents' house so infrequently, I felt such a deep degree of love and acceptance? 
Because in all those other friendships and relationships, it was all based on some side of transactional relationship of how good I was and how funny I was and how attractive I was and the rest. That was the nature and the basis of that love. But when I went to my grandparents' home, I knew that the entire basis for being loved was that I was their grandson. I was family. And this is exactly what Paul is describing as the nature of the church for Philemon. Philemon, you are loved and you love others because this family love, this agape love is the nature of love within the church. It is guaranteed as a part of who we are as the body of Christ. Now, Paul is masterfully warming up Philemon because he's about to hit him pretty hard with the next point. Not only, therefore, is the church a place of guaranteed family love, but Philemon, it's also a place of generous love. You see, this generous love we begin to see in verse 6. Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Now, the word effective there means practical, applicable. It means there's something to be done with this love. There's a duty and a responsibility to love. He goes further in verse 8 where he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what you are required to do, command required, there is a duty to love. There's clearly something that Paul is saying should naturally be required from this community of love. He gets to the point in verse 10 and hits, hits Philemon between the eyes. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, who has become, I who, to whom I've become a father in my imprisonment. Isn't it masterful? I mean, Paul took all this time to even say the guy's name. It's all about love, this guaranteed kind of love, this expectation of, of the duty of love. And then I'm talking about Onesimus. I'm talking about the rebellious runaway thief. He has become my child. I have become his father in my imprisonment. See, what Paul is saying is Philemon, if love is guaranteed within the family of the church, if that's a given within the life of the church, guess who just joined the church? Philemon, if you love the saints, it's, it's a guaranteed nature of what it means to be a Christian, to love the saints. Guess who just became a saint? This rebellious, runaway thief. You see, what Anesimus' new identity in Christ is what Paul is pointing to. When Paul, in another place, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says, whoever is in Christ, hear the whoever, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. Now, within the church, we find real sinners, don't we? Within the church, we find real sinners. I hope that's not a shock to you. It's like the four men that are sitting around in a fellowship group one morning. They're reading the Bible and, and the spirit comes upon them and they decide to be very, very honest about their weaknesses of sin. And so the one says, I have to admit, my weakness is stealing. I see things and I just have to have them. And the other says, well, you know, my weakness is alcohol. I just, I just, I just see it and I can't, I can't stop. 
And the third says, well, my weakness is women. I see a beautiful woman and I just can't keep my eyes to myself. And the fourth says, well, my weakness is gossip and I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) Real sinners in the life of the church. We see it. We see real sinners in our midst. And yet we're called to love them as family. And this is the generous nature of the love that lives within the church. You see, so much of our world's approach to love is about choice and about attractiveness and about what is best for me, right? I I found it, you know, hilarious that on Valentine's Day, archaeologists working on the remains of Pompeii, right? You know, Mount Vesuvius, 79 AD, covers Pompeii in ash, and they, on on Valentine's Day revealed a beautiful untouched fresco from Pompeii. And what is it? It's a picture of Narcissus. Now, this is the guy who was so in love with how beautiful he was that when a competing deity decided to give him a glass-like pond to look into, he died the rest of his life looking at his image in the pond. I mean, so in love with self, right? It's where we get the idea of narcissism. And so much of our understanding of love in our culture is about how it's good for me, right? How does it serve me? It reminds me of Denis de Rougemont, who's effectively, I think, I I recently ran into him, I think he is the kind of French C.S. Lewis, okay? The French C.S. Lewis, and he's writing about one of the ancient uh, legends within the French literature of Tristan and Isolde. And this is kind of the, 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 the foundation of the Lancelot and, and Guinevere story. You know, sort of uh, adultery and great passionate romantic love that divides kingdoms. And here's what Rougemont writes about it. He says, the love is mutual in the sense that Tristan and Isol love one another or at least believe they love one another. But unhappiness comes in because the love which dominates them or at least um, it is not a love of each other as the other really is. They love one another, but each loves the other from the standpoint of self and not from the other's standpoint. Their unhappiness thus originates in a false reciprocity which disguises twin narcissism. I mean, the point is they love each other Because the other makes them feel so good about themselves. I love you because of how you make me feel about myself. But once you stop making me feel good about me, the love will go. And this is the love that we bump into in our culture again and again. Instead, verse 6, Paul uses this word koinonia, this, this word of sharing, fellowship, community. This idea that we are together and we are one as a body, where love becomes generous. Love is for the other. And it breaks down social and economic and ethnic and cultural barriers. As Tim Keller writes, the gospel makes people friends who out in the rest of the world would never be friends. As Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, 
There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of generous love that the gospel brings into the church. Philemon, you love the saints. Will you love this new saint just as much? Will you be generous with your love even when it hurts? But see, Paul doesn't end there. Because though, in the one sense, Paul is pointing to a place where love is guaranteed and where love is generous, ultimately Paul is speaking of a place, the church, where love is understood to be gift. Free, unmerited, unearned gift. It's the word grace. And it bookends this whole book. Right? He begins in verse 3 with these words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course we hear that every time Paul opens up one of his letters. But we miss it, don't we? Grace. Grace. And then he ends it again in verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace, this unmerited kindness that is the gospel. That without this understanding of love as a gift, love as an unearned gift, that this idea of family love that's generous will never make sense. See, verse 17, there's this great moment, we'll talk about it more next week, where Paul says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, receive Anesimus, as you would receive me. It was funny, at the 5.30 service last night, uh, somebody said to me um, after the sermon, they said, um, you know, is Paul not going to address you know, freeing Anesimus as a slave? And I said, you just got to wait a couple more weeks. But for now, this word of receive, this idea of welcome, welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him in the same way that you would welcome me is what Paul says. And the question is, how can Paul ask this of Philemon? I mean, this is crazy. This is radical. How can Paul ask Philemon to receive this runaway thieving rebel because this is the same gracious love that has already been shown to Philemon. See, in God's eyes, we are all runaway thieving rebels. We've all turned our backs on God. As sinners, we've all rejected him. Philemon you included. And the Father has welcomed you and embraced you with gracious love that is unearned, Philemon. So now, Philemon, here comes back this rebellious, thieving rebel. Will you receive him as Christ has received you? See, it's amazing in verse 3 when he says, the grace to you in peace from God our Father. I mean, more on that next week, but again, this idea that we have been brought into a family where God is our Father. All the language for this text of brother, sister, child, God has made us his children. God has called us, unworthy as we are, to become his children. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people, Peter writes. And let us never forget that this invitation, this gracious love came at a great cost. That language, my father, that we can actually pray our father together, 
John 20, there's Jesus in the garden on Easter morning. Right? He has borne the sins of humanity on the cross. Your sin, my sin, your rebellion, my rebellion. He's died, he's gone to death, he's gone to hell in our place, has rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, stands there in the garden on Easter morning and says to Mary Magdalene, oh, of my disciples, go and tell my brothers. Those disciples, those betraying, rejecting, denying, turncoats, disciples, brothers. Go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and to their father, my God and their God. Jesus in his death and resurrection has made the way that we can become children of God. This was the cost to show us this gracious love, this gift of love that we do not deserve. And we rehearse it every time we gather. As we come to this table, we rehearse the cost and the story of our salvation where Jesus won for us a place in this heavenly family. We are to remember as we gather around this table what a gift it is that God has given us, that his love is a gracious gift. And this act of coming to communion on a weekly basis as the church, it forms us, it trains us, it catechizes us in what love looks like. We cannot receive this gift afresh each time we gather and then ignore the words of Romans 15, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. This place that Paul speaks of, the church, this place where love is guaranteed with this familial agape love, this place where love is generous and for the other, this place where love is a pure gift of God, forms us to be the church in the world. See, it's not just about us learning how to love one another. We get formed in how to love the world beyond. We are in the practice and the habit of being schooled and trained and formed as radical people of love in this world. I close with the story of this Iraqi Christian woman who spoke at the trial of her son's murderers. And she said these words, this Christian woman said at the sentencing, she said, your honor, these two men clearly need to be shown love, the love of a mother. Well, now that my son is dead, this mother has a lot of love to give. I would ask that the courts would require that these two men spend a day with me every week so that I can show them what it means to be loved. This is crazy love. This is radical love. This is the love that can only be grown and formed within a place where love is guaranteed, where love is generous, and where love is understood to be pure gift. Philemon, man of love, you know this place, this church. What good news does the church have for our secular age? Philemon, 
will you show this love to Onesimus? Because this kind of love, Philemon, this will change the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.